So I'm so glad you're all here. Thank you for being here, everybody. Let's say a blessing for studying Torah, and then we'll jump right in. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kishanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah Blessed are you, source of life, our God, creator of the universe, who gives us mitzvot and has made it, makes us holy through mitzvot and has given us the mitzvah of studying Torah together. Okay, well, I, I had another very stimulating morning um, studying the portion and tying it into other factors in the Jewish calendar. And it's, I'm sure it's way more than an hour of, uh, of, of ideas and connections that, to make, but I think we'll cover a lot of good ground today. So um, this Torah portion, is called Pinchas. It is Numbers chapter 25, verse 10, through chapter 29, uh, all the way to chapter 30, verse 1. It's a long portion. And it's called Pinchas, named after the protagonist of the very first thing that happens in the portion, and we're going to talk about it. But it's important to note that today is also a Jewish fast day. It's called the Shiva'asar B'Tammuz, the 17th of Tammuz. Just to orient you, in the Torah, there's just one fast day, pretty much. Yom Kippur declared. Um, and uh, however, after the Torah is completed, after the destruction of the second temple, new fast days were instituted. They're not new anymore, obviously, they're 2000 years old, that mark the besieging and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70 and the beginning of our exile from, uh, from the land of Israel, our, our loss of, of self-determination. And one of these dates is today, the 17th of Tammuz, which marks the date, according to tradition, when the walls of Jerusalem, which had been under siege for a long time by the Romans, when the walls were breached. What follows three weeks from now is Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av, the day that the temple was destroyed. So in this three-week interim, the walls have been breached and the final battle over Jerusalem rages over the next three weeks, back in the year 70. And so these three weeks are known in the Jewish tradition as Bein HaMetzarim, uh, uh, which means in the straits, in the difficult time. And uh, they're simply known in English as the three weeks. During this time, uh, very observant Jews will um, uh, follow customs of mourning, of lack of celebration. Um, there's all kinds of customs that mark these three weeks. And then on, after the ninth of Av, we turn our attention back towards life and towards the Jewish new year, 
actually, towards Rosh Hashanah, which will follow approximately seven weeks after the ninth of Av. Okay, so that's where we are on the Jewish calendar. And since it happens that this Thursday class uh, coincides is the 17th of Tammuz and is the portion of Pinchas, I went looking for the connections, which are plenty between this week's portion and this day on the Jewish calendar. So that's just to give you a picture of what I wanna cover with you today. And it's not a pretty topic. This is actually a section of the Torah portion that I usually kind of, one of the ones I prefer to glide over, but I thought I really wanna tackle it today because the calendar's crying out to me as, uh, and I think it'll lead us into a, a really meaningful discussion. So let me tell you what's happening in the portion. For some reason, and we can speculate what that reason is, chapter 25, the portion of Pinchas begins in the middle of chapter 25, which is a, a story. It's a story about how the children of Israel are camped at a place called Shittim, which means acacia wood, on the plains of Moab, near the Jordan River. In the previous week's portion, which we didn't talk about last week because we focus on other aspects of, um, the, of last week's portion, the prophet Balaam has been hired by Balak, the king uh, of that area, to uh, curse the children of Israel. And Bilam, who is a, um, a soothsayer, a prophet, uh, is an oracle, is unable to utter curses. Only blessings come out of Bilam's mouth. And that's a story that we discussed over Shabbat. Uh, Bilam, however, uh, it, what happens next, and it's blamed on Bilam, but that's another story, is that the... Um, Israelite men start having uh, sexual intercourse with the women from Moab. And they invite the Israelite men to give sacrifices to the Moabite God. And so the men have sex with the Moabite women and worship the Moabite God. And the children of Israel then attach themselves to that God named Baal Peor. And God gets very mad, as you might imagine, in the story. Now, again, I'm going to remind you, don't get literal on me. And remember that this is a 3,000-year-old story that the Jewish tradition has very ambivalent feelings about. So if you feel ambivalent when you hear this story, you're in not only good present company, but in good ancient company. So I just want you to, before, before anyone gets all in a huff, that that's in the Bible, it is, okay. Um, and uh, essentially what's going on is um, the boundaries of Israel are falling to pieces, sexually, religiously, it's just chaos. And so God says to Moses, take all the leaders and have them publicly impaled. Uh, 
Um, and uh, so that you can stop God, my wrath from bursting out upon Israel. And uh, so uh, just then one of the Israelite men came and brought a Midianite woman over to his companions in the sight of Moses and all the Israelite community weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay, picture this, very dramatic. A Midianite woman is brought in publicly. Is this a, is this a gang bang? Is this, what is it? It's as, like, it's as outrageous a scene as they can cook up. Where is it happening? In front of the, the, the tent of meeting, right? At the entrance of the tent of meeting, one commentator was saying, trying to explain this as a congregation, is imagine it happening on the bima, you know, on Yom Kippur. You know, what? It's that crazy a scene. And then, here it comes, Pinchas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the Kohen. So the grandson of Aaron, the son of Eliezer, Remember, Aaron died last portion. Eliezer is now the high priest. The son of the high priest takes his spear and runs through the Israelite and the Midianite who are copulating. Did you learn this in Sunday school? I don't remember. And um, that's why I don't usually talk about this portion, but I'm getting very brave with all of you wonderful people. Um, and kills them. And the outburst of death that this had created because God's uh, wrath was pouring out on the people is checked. And people stop dying. So this scene of utter chaos is checked by Pinchas's action. Okay, that's where last week's portion ends. It's kind of a cliffhanger, I guess. Um, and then it picks it up now, today, in this week's portion. So let's put that text up, Gwen, and we'll see what happens now. Thank you. Okay, here's where the top portion begins. That's why this portion is named Pinchas, because it says, God, Yahweh, yod spoke to Moses, saying. Which translation is this? Gwen? Fox. Huh? Yahweh? It's Fox. Oh, that's how Fox does it. Okay. Spoke to Moses, saying. Pinchas, or in English, that name is Phineas. Uh, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my wrath away from my children, the children of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I didn't consume the children of Israel in my jealousy. Um, okay, so the word jealous, kan'o, kin'ati, um, is also usually tran often translated as zealous or impassioned. Um, no, it's kin kan o with uh, uh, up a little higher. Kuf nun aleph. That's the key word for today. Um, 
Uh, oh, Desiree said, phrases you don't expect to hear in Torah study, gang bang. Well, maybe if we did a contemporary translation, that's what it would say, who knows? Thank you, Desiree. Uh, <laughs> the word we wanna focus on is this word, kuf nun aleph. And this translation says jealous. It's often translated as zealous. A kana is a zealot. Um, if you mikane something, you are jealous of it. Um, in your kina, you are impassioned. So zealotry, jealousy, impassioned. Where do we know this word from? Well, it's one of the words that, that God describes God's self with in the Ten Commandments. Do not worship other gods, for I am a zealous God. I am a jealous, zealous God. So, is Pinchas imitating God by being zealous in God's defense? Is Pinchas doing God's work here? Um, it stopped the plague. Therefore, say, Moses, God says to Moses, say, therefore, hinani, I, behold, I give my briti shalom. Show those words to briti shalom. Thank you. I give my covenant of peace to Pinchas um, and to his seed after him, the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and thus made atonement for the children of Israel. Um, uh, there, there's the word kine again, thank you. Uh, now, the name of the man of Israel that was slain, who was slain with the Midianite woman, his name was Zimri ben Salu, a prince of a father's house among the tribe of Shimon. The name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Kozbi. Kozbi is actually a word, kazav, uh, means a word of sort of, um, oh, what's the right word, immorality. That's kind of what, uh, disgrace, that's what Kozbi means the daughter of Tzur. He was the head of the people of a father's house in Midian. Okay, that's as far as I need to go with that. Um, so you can, you can take it down uh, now. Great. Okay. Anybody wanna share any reactions? You don't have to, but uh, I'll, I'll keep going, but you're welcome to. And, um, Yes, if I may. Please, Ellen. Um, there are two things. One is that translation, I mean, that Hebrew didn't show it, but in Briti Shalom, the, the Vav in Shalom is broken. And that's, that's, you know, to me, a really interesting piece in terms of was Pinchas doing this in anger, just like, whew, or was he being an intercessor for God because it stopped the plague that 24,000 people had, had already died from? And 
and prevented the um, the heads of all the tribes from having to go and kill their own people. So, right. Where so, where was he coming from? Because he gets a really bad rap now. And why was he giving given this covenant of peace? And so I, I just think it's really interesting the whole thing. Thank you. I'm going to refer to both of those things uh, first. Then I'll look at the the um, the chat and respond to the question there. And Carol, hold on a second. Um, so I'm going to talk about this fascinating scribal tradition in the word covenant of peace. We're going to get to that. And um, the question that is an ambivalent question is when do you take the law into your own hand? When in your zeal, is it the right time to do that? Is it ever the right time to do that? Thank you, Gwen. Um, take that down for a moment, but then I, I really want you to put it back up. Thank you. So let those questions be there and let it be a question of a reflection also for ourselves. When do you take the law into your own hands? Is there ever a time when one should do that? What are the consequences of doing that? Can it be the right thing to do sometime? Uh, those are the questions that the Jewish tradition asks about Pinchas's actions and that we're gonna ask today. Um, Roberta Wall said, what do you make of the naming of the, of the name of the Midianite woman? Uh, all the names, it, the story is a symbolic story just like most of the stories in the Torah. It's there to serve a purpose. And so the names also serve a purpose. Um, so the fact that her name is simply a name that means disgrace or something like that just fits in with what her, what this character, I shouldn't say her, what this character's function is in, uh, in the story. And Zimri's name, which I haven't plumbed, who is the man, should also, we should also look into what that name means, but I didn't get to that in today's preparation. I'm sorry. Um, can Please. I just say in, in the translation I'm looking at, Cosby yeah. is translated as voluptuous. Really? Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so it's got sexual, uh, sexual overtones, undertones and everything in between. All right. Um, uh, Carol, I'll recognize you just a moment. I just want to look at some of the chat. Roni asks, please explain what action was checked by the action of killing. In the Torah, when God's wrath bursts out on the people, it's called a plague and uh, people are dying. And there are multiple instances where Moses or Aaron, or in this case, Pinchas, is an intercessor who checks the behavior that is causing God's wrath to burst out onto the people. And that's so... It's called a plague in the text, and it's essential, and it's whatever God's wrath is, whatever that energy is that's destroying people is checked. Uh, Wendy says, I think jealous and zealous are very different. Jealousy is, is sometimes seen as having a level of insecurity in it, but God is not insecure. Am I misunderstanding? Um, I have a feeling, I didn't do this prep either. If anyone wants to do a little dictionary, uh, uh, checking, you're welcome to, about the relationship of jealous and zealous. Uh, so um, uh, uh, jealous rage, I think is, 
connected at least an older English uh, usage um, to be similar to zealous Wendy. Um, it's the poetics of Torah, says Joan, that names are symbolic. She embodies the sin here and so is named for it. I agree, Joan. And Ellen Trebwasser said, at the end of the last portion, Israelite men went to Moab and started sleeping with the women and worshiping their God. A plague started, and when Pinchas killed the couple, it stopped. Ah, that's also a clear answer to Roni's question. And Joan said, I think we're commanded to intervene in social justice. It's our moral responsibility to halacha. Um, and uh, it sounds like zeal and, zeal and jealousy, something about impassioned. Carol, unmute yourself. I, uh, maybe I misheard, but these are, these are Midian? This is, this is people from Midian? It goes no. between Moabite and Midianite. Okay, it so shifts. it's not. Then I'm not worried. No, there are Midianites and Moabites. And because Midianites are mentioned, one of the Midrashim is that Moses was frozen because he had married a Midianite woman. Yes, and Jethro. I mean, his hero, Jethro. Just so I got a whole an opening for a whole story. Yep, well, you're not the first. That's right. One of the stories is that the leadership was frozen and that Moses was frozen uh -huh. because his wife, Tiparo, was a Midianite woman. And so, it's, so Pinchas jumped into the fray of the lack of leadership in that moment. So is Pinchas... Is he a hero? Is he a not? Should you behave that way? Should he not? It's like, this is a fascinating discussion. And uh, uh, I'm gonna get Ellen's comment and then I wanna bring us back to that broken vav that Ellen Weaver brought up. Zealous from the medieval Latin, uh, zeal, jealous. Middle English coming from jaloux, from the Latin zeal, so they are. Um, but zealous is earlier. Uh, right, but they're the same origin. Okay, but that answers uh, uh, Wendy's question. Zealous and jealous have the same word origin. Roni said, did the amorality stop because of fear? Um, no, uh, the, that's, that's, that's not spoken or implied here. It stops because of the immorality being um, uh, ceasing. Um, and however, we would be welcome, any of us, to tell a story about how the Israelites felt. Okay, um, so now Gwen's gonna put up that uh, word shalom, which is a beautiful way into this uh, ambivalence in this story. This is how traditionally the word shalom in my covenant of peace, when God says, I am uh, giving Pinchas my covenant of shalom, um, the ancient scribal tradition is that the vav in shalom is scribed with a little break in it. It's called ktua. It is a broken letter. And it is the only broken letter in the, in the entire scribal tradition of how you write a Torah. And what's so outrageous about this being a broken letter 
And again, I think I need to back up um, a little for folks who are newer to this. The ancient scribes, who were also the proto-rabbis, the rabbis descend from the ancient scribes, were the literate class who kept the tradition and who interpreted the tradition, which is why in Jewish parlance, we have what's called the written Torah, which is the scroll, and we have what's called the oral Torah, which are the ancient interpretations that accompanied it and were passed down generation to generation and expanded upon to this very day, okay? So the rabbis were the keepers of the written tradition, but also the creators and purveyors of the oral tradition, which interpreted the Torah. And the rabbis would encode interpretations into the scribal customs. So here's why a broken vav is so outrageous. In, Ju in, in Judaism, if there is a broken letter, an incomplete letter in a Torah, that Torah is considered pasul, which means um, invalid. And if you say, and there are many stories on the internet you'll encounter, of people who encountered this broken vav and thought they were reading from a Torah that shouldn't be read from. It's considered to be so important that every letter be legible and complete, that if you encounter an incomplete or broken letter in the Torah, traditionally, you roll that Torah up and put it away until it can be repaired. So that's how important it is that every letter be complete. And yet, the oral tradition, the scribal tradition, assigns this one letter to be written incomplete. There's got to be a story here, right, everybody? And what about Pinchas's actions? However, we're not, we're not in the room where, as they say now in modern parlance from Hamilton, we're not in the room where it happened, right? So um, we get to simply catch and expand upon a stream of interpretations that um, derive from this broken vav. So here, hey, before I give you any, what if we're sitting in the room and we know that this broken vav, that God, this covenant of shalom that's incomplete, that God gives to Pinchas, uh, What's, what would you say is the message here? Uh, Joel? Um, I have, I'm going to try and answer the question, but I also have a question. Okay. Um, the, the, the letter is broken, I think, because it's up to us to complete the letter. So we complete Shalom. Ah. But in the first letter, it seems like there's a shin on top of the shin. So is that like peace within peace, if you complete the letter? Isn't that beautiful? The shin on top of the shin, you will see in many different places, and it's called a crown. And it appears on many letters in the Torah, not just on the shin. Uh, but since we're talking, so um, let me say something about that too. Okay. The shin 
on, which is called a crown in Hebrew, a keter, is part of the traditional way that Hebrew, uh, that Torah scrolls are written. Um, and in its plain meaning, it's an elaborate font, right? That's what it is. It's like a font with lots of curly cues. But in the Jewish tradition, they're called ktarim. In Greek, they're called titles. Yud, yud is the littlest letter, is called in Greek iota, which comes into English as jot. So the phrase every jot and tittle comes from this ascribal tradition. And so Rabbi Akiva, most famously in the Jewish tradition, um, uh, Rabbi Akiva, most famously in the Jewish tradition, said that there are meanings upon meanings encoded in every jot and tittle of the Torah, in every crown and every... So that's where that is. Now... Tell them the story of um, Moshe in the back of the classroom. No, it'll be take too long. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, but back to Joel's first comment, which was uh, that it's up to us that the piece, that this piece is not complete. Somehow it's up to us to finish this letter. That's a beautiful teaching. Um, and uh, there are going to be many more teachings that will all give us that feeling. Um, uh, oh, the tagin, the crowns, if you're a scribe, uh, uh, okay, the scribal tradition is very elaborate. Navi Gail, who knows a lot about it, is, was emailing privately about how, more about the tribal traditions. Um, Ellen had a question. Uh, and then uh, I want to recognize Gail Albert, who wants to say something too. So, Ellen? Oh. Well, Pinchas was a Kohen, and the right. priest. And the Kohanim are not... Ellen, he was the son of the high priest. I know, but, yep. but he was himself a Kohen because he was of the lineage. No, I was amplifying what you oh, said. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. And aren't supposed to have anything to do with death. So he's just murdered, even if it was for great reason and an important reason, both for God and for the people, there's a consequence for who he can be as a person from having killed Kohen or not. How, I mean, how do you, there's a consequence. Mm -hmm. So I love that it's the broken Vav. And the consequence which you are, which the rabbis talk about at length in the Talmud, is that since he's been in contact with death, how can he continue to be the high priest, which he will inherit from his father Eliezer when, when Eliezer uh, passes? And this is a big problem. Um, the rabbis identify Aaron and his disciples as um, uh, makers of peace and pursuers of peace. That's the way of the priesthood, is bringing shalom, bringing wholeness and peace to the community. So. Uh, has Pinchas, in his zeal, disqualified himself, which is why the rabbis note that in that verse, God says, I'm making Pinchas a priest. 
because he has lost his uh, position and needs to be reinstated somehow. But he's reinstated with this Brit Shalom, this that is it that is marred, it's blemished, right? To use the language of the Torah. So some commentators say the vav is broken because it's supposed to read brit shalem, uh, which means wholeness or perfection, because the priest, the high priest is supposed to be morally and physically whole. And um, uh, uh, Pinchas has now, um, uh, has now desecrated that shlemut, that wholeness that's required of the priest. So the Torah and the commentaries, and as we are now, all recognize the, comp- the, the, the ambiguous and complicated moral situation here. Um, uh, I find it quite fascinating. Carol wrote a sentence that's worth reading out loud. The very essence of shalom is broken. Feels like now. Yes, that's what headed me in this direction, Carol. That's why I couldn't get away from this section today. Um, and now I want to um, ask uh, Gail Albert to make a comment because she raised her hand. Gail, you have to unmute yourself. Did okay. Sorry, I thought I did. Um, I have several comments that are interrelated on this. Um, so, if one reads Torah as a continuous narrative, which we're supposed to, we just had Moses being told he can't go into the promised land, being denied that. And Moses also committed murder way back Mm -hmm. when he killed the slave master. Mm -hmm. Same question and same ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And there are at least some commentators who've said that's why he's denied going into the promised land because of that flaw. Right up there in 10 commandments is thou shalt not murder. So what I would and I think it's a continuing discussion then by, by placing these two stories next to each other of when are we allowed that kind of action, okay? Um, when do we break the moral law? When is it okay? And, and there are consequences, as was just said. And also, our exodus from Egypt begins with that leader who has started the whole process when he commits that Midian has to flee Egypt. And with Pincus, we're now in the new generation. The old leaders are going, about to be gone. And Pincus, son of Eliezer, is for to go into the promised land. And we're bringing with us, with that murder and that broken vav, the continuing problem we have of being human <laughs> and particularly falling into perhaps we could call it righteous anger we don't know for sure what he was thinking but at least in part breaking making bad moral decisions that have in many ways important and good consequences in this case he stops the plague mm-hmm. um, in Moses case it leads to him ultimately taking us all out of Egypt mm-hmm. Um, and the other piece I wanted to say was that for the personal spiritual journey, I think that Pincus also represents the beginning where we really take over monitoring ourselves. 
more and more. And we're going to do it with a lot of, not necessarily with ambiguity, how well we do it. It's always going to be a broken valve. So anyway, that's my comments. I'm going to sum up what you said. Uh, thank you. Those comments are super. It's always going to be a broken valve. That's really well said. And so we are tasked with having to figure out if it's ever time to take the law into our hands. And Roni makes a great, great point, very good points. The fact that a murder would end immorality is also a problem to my ethics. Yes, I understand. I very much understand. Um, yeah, that was great, Gail. Um, and uh, Joan writes, there is breach in this portion from the beginning in Jerusalem too. Yes, the walls of Jerusalem are breached. There's brokenness all over this day that we are marking today. So I want to um, go on in the interest of time to tell you some of the other connections that we need that, that kind of blow me away once again. The, um, that, that this is our portion on this day. First of all, I want to mention that Elijah, the prophet, is the only other person referred to in the Torah as zealous for God. Pinchas and Elijah. And so the rabbis recognize that and they make the passage about Elijah, um, the Haftorah portion for Pinchas. They link the two because of that. So I asked Gwen to excerpt that for us too so you could see where that is. It's from the book of Kings, chapter 19. This is this week's prophetic reading. The only other place where zealous is... Um, there. So there he went into a cave. Uh, now, Elijah has just uh, come away from murdering the prophets of Baal, right? That he's done the same thing that Pinchas does in a way, in trying to preserve the um, religious, uh, uh, the, 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 the spiritual integrity of the children of Israel. And he's run into the wilderness. He's gone 40 days and 40 nights, and now he's at the mountain of God at Mount Sinai. And it says, he went into a cave, and there he spent the night. And then the word of the Lord came to him. He said, Malachapo Eliyahu, what are you doing here, Eliyahu? And he replied, I am moved by my zeal. There's that word. For the Lord, the God of hosts. Thank you, Gwen. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the sword. I alone am left, and they are out to take my life. And in this very famous passage, God says, come out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And the Lord passed by. There was a great and mighty wind splitting mountains and shattering rocks by the power of the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, called the mama daka, a soft murmuring sound, nah, the fine sound of silence, or as it's often translated, a still small voice. That's where that phrase comes from, this portion. 
When Elijah heard that still small voice, he wrapped his mantle about his face and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then a voice addressed him with the exact same question, Eliyahu. Why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah gives the exact same answer. I am moved by zeal for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and have put your prophets to the sword. I alone am left, and they are out to take my life. And God sends him off and says, it's time for you to give your mantle to Elisha. And he will proclaim the next ruler of Israel. So it's um, this story we could spend hours on also. But I wanted to share it with you so that you could see that Pinchas and Elijah are both in their zeal, have also at many in it, um, uh, um, taken the law into their own hands. And uh, oh yes, this moment is so dramatic, and I I can never I always come back to it. Is the message? I was reading Rabbi Jonathan Sachs who was proposing this. Is the message, is this a rebuke from God to Elijah, this still small voice? Does Elijah think that God dwells in the fireworks of earthquakes and thunder and flames, which God does appear in frequently in the Torah? Maybe this is all, maybe the broken shalom for Pinchas and the still small voice for Elijah are a message about zeal unchecked. That was a beautiful teaching that I read. Um, the imperfect leader, says Ellen Trivasa, Rabbi Ellen, Moshe and Elijah, is instructed to pass on the mantle of leadership to Joshua and Elisha. So in our Torah portion, one of the next things that happens back in the book of Numbers is that Moses passes on the mantle of leadership, prepares to, to Joshua. And the rabbis asked, why not Pinchas? He stepped right in into the vacuum of leadership. Um, the Kotzka Rebbe in the 19th century said this about that. Why was Joshua then appointed Moses' successor, not Pinchas? And the Kotzka said, a zealot cannot be a leader. That requires patience, forbearance, and respect for due process. I was thinking about how rare it is that a revolutionary firebrand becomes, once, once, once liberation has been won, how frequently they are unable to become effective leaders of their new nation. How rare that is. I was thinking about that. Could Pinchas be the leader or would it need to be someone else? Uh, I thought that was an amazing, no, Elisha is a man. That's right. Uh, and you would enjoy reading the stories of Elijah and Elisha. They are really uh, dramatic action stories. Um, Ellen Weaver has her hand up. Um, Joshua's been Moses's right hand person all along and he is a leader 
-hmm. and he is respected. Pinchas is a Kohen, and he's been given back his priesthood earlier in in the Parsha. So um, he's he has a job, and it, I mean, he wouldn't do to be the kind of leader that Moses to Joshua, which is already a huge stretch. But the the smicha, the ordination of Joshua is just gorgeous. I don't know if you're going to have us read it, but... uh, No, we're not going to get to it today. Um, What I wanted to say is that one of the traditions about why Moses isn't the high priest is because he had blood on his hands. And one of the reasons that David isn't permitted to build the temple explicitly stated in the book of um, uh, Samuel is that he has blood on his hands. And so his son, what's his son's name? Shlomo, Shalom, Shlomo, is the one who can build the temple. So there's this understanding of, again, of the ambivalence of nation building, violence versus consolidation, you know, zealotry versus due process. The rabbis, really are conflicted about Pinchas because they say that, you know, if Pinchas had first gone to a court, this is really a layered comment, listen to this. If Pinchas had first gone to the Sanhedrin, to the court, and said, I, uh, look what's going on, may I have permission to kill him? They would have said, no, he needs to go to trial. That's not how you do things. Um, they even say, that if Zimri, who was being attacked by Pinchas, had had at the time and killed, him, killed Pinchas in return in self-defense, he would have been innocent because you can't murder someone. With that. And so the rabbis are, uh, it's just so fascinating how um, they wrestle with this and consider Pinchas's actions to be flawed, to be flawed. Now, in the minutes remaining, I must jump ahead. Why do the rabbis feel this way? In the first century, we know from Josephus and we know from contemporary Jewish sources, there were several camps, several parties, as it were, of Jews, and we know from the New Testament as well, who were, who were trying to accommodate, live with, or resist Roman occupation. There were the Pharisees who get a bad name in the New Testament. Those are the rabbis who are accommodationist. They're trying to figure out how how they can continue to live as a Jewish people in the face of Roman occupation. There are the Sadducees, the priestly caste, who mostly decide to be in the Romans' pocket because the priesthood is uh, given to the highest bidder at that point. Um, there are the Essenes who retreat to the wilderness and wait and try to preserve their integrity outside of society. And there are the zealots. They're known as zealots in Hebrew, the kinaim, same word. What happens in the year 66 is that a rebellion rises up throughout Judea 
against Rome and actually in Jewish communities around the Mediterranean. As this rebellion persists, the zealots take over. Jerusalem is besieged. And of the different groups, the zealots take over Jerusalem. The zealots will not negotiate. They are determined to fight to the death. They will not compromise with Rome. And it's probably historically accurate from the little that we know from Lore and from Josephus. They did things like, uh, while the city was under siege, they burned some of the food stores within the city. They killed people who tried to get out of the city to negotiate. The rabbis, now, this is totally understandable. It's like a fight to the death against Rome. It's like, remember the story of Masada. Uh, it's like, no, we'd rather die. Um, it was a civil war. Yes, Enid says, well, let me see uh, just what people said. Um, Roni said, so true as revolutionaries are often not effective political leaders. We can think about Fidel and Che Guevara, yeah. Early separation of church, I would think mostly of Yasser Arafat in our case as an incredibly effective zealot uh, and an incredibly uh, terrible uh, national leader when it was time to transition into a role of order and law. Gail said, an early separation of church and state. Political life requires compromise more than zealotry. Keep that in mind. Rabbi Ellen said, we see it all the time. First generation builds something. Second, they manage it okay. Later generation, things fall apart. Yeah. And Edith said, do you agree this was a civil war and the Jews defeated themselves? Not necessarily defeated themselves, but it was clearly a civil war as well as a rebellion against Rome. And again, if you think of other people struggling against imperial powers. They always break into factions. Think about, is, think about the modern Zionist movement breaking up into the Irgun, the Stern Gang, and the Haganah, and fighting each other, which they did. Um, uh, Roberta Wall wrote, Black people protesting during COVID. Stop killing us. Wait, you have to write that more clearly, Roberta, so I'll understand. Um, Carol Fox Preska said, I've always been uncomfortable with Masada being held as heroic. Yes, the modern Israeli narrative uh, uh, is shifting as Israelis feel the same way. Oh, stop killing us uh, and willing to die, right. Um, read about Arafat. Um, I'll recommend a book to you, Roni. Uh, I suggest you read My Promised Land by Ari Shavit. My, it's not specifically about Arafat, but uh, I think it'll give you a good overview. Um, risking death from COVID to stop police killings of black people. I understood, yes. A real moral quandary we're in right now, aren't we? Um, okay, back to the zealots of the first century. It was a civil war. And um, the rabbis who were not of the zealot party, 
even if they initially backed the rebellion, the rabbis who were stuck in Jerusalem under siege disagreed with the strategy and wanted to make peace and compromise with the rabbis, with these Romans. In the famous story, Rabbi Yochanan de Zakkai has himself smuggled out of the besieged Jerusalem so that he can negotiate with Vespasian, another very incredibly great story that I won't have time to go into detail today. And he says to Vespasian, okay, you can have Jerusalem and you can have political control. Give me Yavne. Yavne was a place, a rabbinic, a place where the rabbis could meet, pursue the development of Jewish law and practice, and give up national aspirations. In other words, Yochanan ben Zakkai was willing to surrender their national aspirations in favor of cultural, political survival. Um, and in the notes, you'll see other, other people suggesting things you can read about uh, Palestinian leadership. Um, so what the rabbis have to say about the zealots is very, very negative. And the conclusion in rabbinic literature over the next several hundred years as they try to evaluate what happened to them is that, and many of you will be familiar with this phrase, that the temple was destroyed because of sinat chinam, because of baseless hatred amongst the Jewish people. Uh, baseless, groundless hatred. How many movements have torn themselves apart because of egos taking the place of everybody keeping their eye on the goal and subsuming their passion into a greater goal? This is an enormous challenge. Um, Uh, here's what I wanted to say. What the rabbis do as they confront this praise of zealotry in their Torah is they do what is the Jewish way of they choose other verses in order to counteract the verse. So I'm going to give you my favorite example which you won't be able to see on your screen um, unless Gwen with her nimble fingers, uh, it's when we take out the Torah from the ark and we return the Torah to the ark. When we take out the Torah from the ark, the rabbis instituted liturgy by taking verses from the Torah. And the first verse they took was, And when the ark set out, Moses would say, Kuma Adonai, Viafutsu Oivecha, Vianusu Misanecha Mipanecha. Rise up, Adonai, may your enemies be scattered and your opponents flee from before you. You remember the verse? Um, 
Well, if you have a Sidur, uh, uh, that, because... This, well, I have a Sidur, but I can't screen share it. Then, then don't put it up, because it'll get too confusing. But I have If I could screen share, I can find it in a second. Well, fine, if you find it, but it's okay. I'll make you uh, co-host. Because the, um, the, what's in our prayer service is a compilation of verses chosen to counteract each other. So right after this very martial, rise up, Adonai, scatter your enemies, the rabbis added this verse. Ki mitzion teitzei Torah u'devar Adonai mi'erushalayim. For out of Zion comes forth the Torah and the word of God from Jerusalem. And if you knew, that, if you knew your Bible, you would know that the next line is, and the word of God from Jerusalem saying, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Um, you did it. Uh, so the part that's not in there is the rest of the verse. The rabbis put in the most anti-war verse in the Hebrew Bible when we take out the Torah. Then when we put the Torah away, why don't you go to that? It's four, you'll go all the way to 441. I think you're there. Almost, keep going. You're doing so well. There. So, when we put the Torah away, it says, from the book of Numbers, And when the ark would rest, Moses would say, bring back, O God, the many thousand troops of Israel. To which the rabbis added, it is a tree of life for them that hold fast to it. All who uphold it may be counted fortunate. Its ways are ways of pleasantness and all its paths are peace. This was the, again, I know it's a lot to uh, kind of get used to if you're new to this, but the Jewish way was never to contradict or negate a line of Torah. It was to get a different line of Torah to do your talking for you. Because God said this too. And so the rabbis who were, who, you know, again, another famous saying of Yochanan ben Zakkai, he says, if you hear the Messiah is coming and you're planting a tree, okay, what did Messiah mean in the first century? It meant the military savior of Israel, okay? The anointed one. It didn't mean, didn't mean what we mean when we think of Messiah in, in the century since. If you, see, if you hear that the Messiah is coming, the anointed king who will, from the line of King David, and you're planting a tree, Plant, finish planting your tree, and then go greet the Messiah. A very jaundiced view of military exploit. Because the rabbis were living and trying to re re save Judaism in the wake of the worst military cataclysm the Jews had experienced in hundreds and hundreds of years, brought about by the action 
of the party of zealots. Fortunately, we're the inheritors of the rabbinic tradition, not the zealot tradition. Zealotry abides in Judaism, but it is given a backseat to this idea of um, that, uh, that choose life takes precedence over every other command. Uh, let's see what Ellen said. Calling it sinat chinam also blames the victims. I never thought of it that way. Um, uh, base, I mean, if you think of Martin Luther King and the, um, the, uh, the, the, the theories of pacifism and civil disobedience, uh, the victims are also need to practice uh, not falling into baseless hatred because this is the moral conundrum of acts of zealotry. You interrupt like, oh, if I'd only had the chance to shoot Hitler, yes. And at the same time, does violence beget more violence? I am not standing on a soapbox here telling us, I mean, what, how would Israel, how, was Israel founded because of uh, civil disobedience? You know, modern Israel, were the lives saved because of the willingness of Jews to fight more important than the lives that were lost. It's like, I am not spouting off here. I want us to consider this, um, uh, this, this beautiful problem that we face as humans. What do we do with our impassioned zeal? What do we do with it? When do we exercise it? How do we know? Is there a moment just to burst forth like in the Hanukkah story and kill the, the person who's bowing down to the Roman statue and say, whoever was with God, come with me? If that hadn't happened, we might not be here to tell the story. But the weight of Jewish tradition is against it but it can't rule it out, is what I wanna say. I think that would be another way of pointing to that broken vav in shalom. We're always aiming for shalom, but sometimes it has to be a broken vav in order for us to live to see and be another day. Um, oh, Ellen Weaver was referring to the regular people, not the leaders, thank you, Ellen. I'll read a couple more comments. Yes, Israel itself is wrestling with the consequences of being a militaristic society. My, my, all my nephews and nieces served in the army. Like I talk to them about this a lot. Um, Roni said, very profound and complex. Plant the tree first, then meet the Messiah. Why not the other way around? Because Yohanan ben Zakkai had seen with his own eyes, the consequences of, um, uh, of, uh, the, of rebellion rather than uh, accommodation. So that's what that story represents. Um, plant, because it's our responsibility to bring the world tikkun. Desiree said, often we take it to Facebook and fight with people. 
oh boy, it's so great to be anonymous or to just be able to, Facebook is a big problem. Keep reading the news. Let's see if enough pressure can be exerted upon them to uh, responsibly find a way to curb people's impassioned zeal. It's important to take care of the future by finishing the planting. And zealotry is important in some aspect. Exactly. So please take away from you from this session, this idea of that broken vav in shalom. It's broken, but it's there. We are, uh, we are complicated and our tradition reflects all that complexity. But the rabbi said, temper any militaristic impulse with the desire to beat swords into plowshares. Temper it, temper it, temper it. And I guess the last thing I'll say, ah, Wendy said broken vav and broken vessels that we need to continually work to heal. Yes, um, I would say that our impassioned nature is our yetzer hara, our base energy impulse, urge. And in Jewish tradition, we always, our task as mature adults is to always channel our impassioned impulses through our yetzer hatov, which is our higher intelligence, our desire for the greatest good, and see how to do that. Boy, aren't we all wrestling with that right now? Let's keep wrestling uh, as the moral beings we are, but also as the impassioned beings that we are. And I'll leave it at that for today. Thank you so much.